This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varied Types by G. K. Chesterton Chapter 4 Pope and the Art of Satire The general critical theory common in this and the last century is that it was very easy for the imitators of Pope to write English poetry. The classical couplet was a thing that anyone could do. So far as that goes, one may justifiably answer by asking anyone to try. It may be easier, really, to have wit than really, in the boldest and most enduring sense, to have imagination but it is immeasurably easier to pretend to have imagination than to pretend to have wit. A man may indulge in a sham rhapsody, because it may be the triumph of a rhapsody to be unintelligible. But a man cannot indulge in a sham joke, because it is the ruin of a joke to be unintelligible. A man may pretend to be a poet, but he can no more pretend to be a wit and he can pretend to bring rabbits out of a hat without having learnt to be a conjurer. Therefore, it may be submitted, there was a certain discipline in the old antithetical couplet of Pope and his followers. If it did not permit of the great liberty of wisdom used by the minority of great geniuses, neither did it permit of the great liberty of folly which is used by the majority of small writers. A prophet could not be a poet in those days, perhaps, but at least a fool could not be a poet. If we take, for the sake of example, such a line as Pope's, Damn with faint praise, assent with civil leer, the test is comparatively simple. A great poet would not have written such a line, perhaps, but a minor poet could not. Supposing that a lyric poet of the new school really had to deal with such an idea as that expressed in Pope's line about man, a being darkly wise and rudely great. Is it really so certain that he would go deeper into the matter than the old antithetical jingle goes? I venture to doubt whether he would really be any wiser or weirder or more imaginative or more profound. The one thing that he would really be would be longer. Instead of writing a being darkly wise and rudely great, the contemporary poet, in his elaborate, ornamented books of verse, would produce something like the following. A creature of feature, more dark, more dark, more dark than skies, yea, darkly wise, yea, darkly wise, darkly wise as formless fate, and if he be great, if he be great, then rudely great, rudely great as a plough that plies, and darkly wise, and darkly wise. Have we really learnt to think more broadly, or have we only learned to spread our thoughts thinner? I have a dark suspicion that a modern poet might manufacture an admirable lyric out of almost every line of Pope. There is, of course, an idea in our time that the very antithesis of the typical line of Pope is a mark of artificiality. I shall have occasion more than once to point out that nothing in the world has ever been artificial. 
but certainly antithesis is not artificial. An element of paradox runs through the whole of existence itself. It begins in the realm of ultimate physics and metaphysics, in the two facts that we cannot imagine a space that is infinite, and that we cannot imagine a space that is finite. It runs through the inmost complications of divinity, in that we cannot conceive that Christ in the wilderness was truly pure, unless we also conceive that he desired to sin. It runs in the same manner through all the minor matters of morals, so that we cannot imagine courage existing except in conjunction with fear, or magnanimity existing except in conjunction with some temptation to meanness. If Pope and his followers caught this echo of natural irrationality, they were not any the more artificial. Their antitheses were fully in harmony with existence, which is itself a contradiction in terms. Pope was really a great poet. He was the last great poet of civilization. Immediately after the fall of him and his school come Burns and Byron, and the reaction towards the savage and the elemental. But to Pope, civilization was still an exciting experiment. Its perukes and ruffles were to him what feathers and bangles are to a South Sea Islander, the real romance of civilization. And in all the forms of art which peculiarly belong to civilization, he was supreme. In one especially he was supreme, the great and civilized art of satire, and in this we have fallen away utterly. We have had a great revival in our time of the cult of violence and hostility. Mr. Hensley and his young men have an infinite number of furious epithets with which to overwhelm anyone who differs from them. It is not a placid or untroubled position to be Mr. Henley's enemy, though we know that it is certainly safer than to be his friend. And yet, despite all this, these people produce no satire. Political and social satire is a lost art, like pottery and stained glass. It may be worthwhile to make some attempt to point out a reason for this. It may seem a singular observation to say that we are not generous enough to write great satire. This, however, is approximately a very accurate way of describing the case. To write great satire, to attack a man so that he feels the attack and half acknowledges its justice, it is necessary to have a certain intellectual magnanimity which realizes the merits of the opponent as well as his defects. This is indeed only another way of putting the simple truth that in order to attack an army we must know not only its weak points but also its strong points. England in the present season and spirit fails in satire for the same simple reason that it fails in war. It despises the enemy. In matters of battle and conquest we have got firmly rooted in our minds the idea, an idea fit for the philosophers of Bedlam, that we can best trample on a people by ignoring all the particular merits which give them a chance of trampling upon us. It has become a breach of etiquette to praise the enemy, whereas when the enemy is strong, every honest scout ought to praise the enemy. It is impossible to vanquish an army without having a full account of its strength. It is impossible to satirize a man 
without having a full account of his virtues. It is too much the custom in politics to describe a political opponent as utterly inhuman, as utterly careless of his country, as utterly cynical, which no man ever was since the beginning of the world. This kind of invective may often have a great superficial success. It may hit the mood of the moment. It may raise excitement and applause. It may impress millions. But there is one man among all those millions whom it does not impress, whom it hardly ever touches, that is, the man against whom it is directed. The one person for whom the whole satire has been written in vain is the man whom it is the whole object of the institution of satire to reach. He knows that such a description of him is not true. He knows that he is not utterly unpatriotic, or utterly self-seeking, or utterly barbarous and revengeful. He knows that he is an ordinary man, and that he can count as many kindly memories, as many humane instincts, as many hours of decent work and responsibility, as any other ordinary man. But behind all this he has his real weaknesses, the real ironies of his soul. Behind all these ordinary merits lie the mean compromises, the craven silences, the sullen vanities, the secret brutalities, the unmanly visions of revenge. It is to these that satire should reach if it is to touch the man at whom it is aimed, and to reach these it must pass and salute a whole army of virtues. If we turn to the great English satirists of the 17th and 18th century, for example, we find that they had this rough but firm grasp of the size and strength, the value and the best points of their adversary. Dryden, before hewing Atofel in pieces, gives a splendid and spirit account of the insane valor and inspiring cunning of the daring pilot in extremity who was more untrustworthy in calm than in storm and steered too near the rocks to boast his wit. The whole is, so far as it goes, a sound and picturesque version of the great Shaftesbury. It would in many ways serve as a very sound and picturesque account of Lord Randolph Churchill. But here comes in very pointedly the difference between our modern attempts at satire and the ancient achievement of it. The opponents of Lord Randolph Churchill, both liberal and conservative, did not satirize him nobly and honestly, as one of those great wits to madness near allied. They represented him as a mere puppy, a silly and irreverent upstart whose impudence supplied the lack of policy and character. Churchill had grave and even gross faults, a certain coarseness, a certain hard boyish assertiveness, a certain lack of magnanimity a certain peculiar patrician vulgarity. But he was much larger man than satire depicted him, and therefore the satire could not and did not overwhelm him. And here we have the cause of the failure of contemporary satire, that it has no magnanimity, that is to say, no patience. It cannot endure to be told that its opponent has his strong points, just as Mr. Chamberlain could not endure to be told that the Boers had a regular army. It can be content with nothing except persuading itself that its opponent is utterly bad or utterly stupid, that is, that he is what he is not, and what nobody else is. If we take any prominent politicians of the day, such, for example, as Sir William Harcourt, 
we shall find that this is the point in which all his party invective fails. The Tory satire, at the expense of Sir William Harcourt, is always desperately endeavouring to represent that he is inept, that he makes a fool of himself, that he is disagreeable and disgraceful and untrustworthy. The defect of all this is that we all know that it is untrue. Everyone knows that Sir William Harcourt is not inept, but is almost the ablest parliamentarian now alive. Everyone knows that he is not disagreeable or disgraceful, but a gentleman of the old school, who is on excellent social terms with his antagonists. Everyone knows that he is not untrustworthy, but a man of unimpeachable honour, who is much trusted. Above all, he knows it himself, and is therefore affected by the satire exactly as any one of us would be if we were accused of being black or keeping a shop for the receiving of stolen goods. We might be angry at the libel, but not at the satire. For a man is angry at a libel, because it is false, but at a satire, because it is true. Mr. Henley and his young men are very fond of invective and satire. If they wish to know the reason of their failure in these things, they need only to turn to the opening of Pope's superb attack upon Addison. The Henleyite's idea of satirizing a man is to express a violent contempt for him, and by the heat of this to persuade others and himself that the man is contemptible. I remember reading a satiric attack on Mr. Gladstone by one of the young anarchic Tories, which began by asserting that Mr. Gladstone was a bad public speaker. If these people would, as I have said, go quietly and read Pope's Atticus, they would see how a great satirist approaches a great enemy. Peace to all such, but were there one whose fires true genius kindles and fair fame inspires, blessed with each talent and each art to please, and born to write, converse, and live with ease. Should such a man... And then follows the torrent of that terrible criticism. Pope was not such a fool as to try and make out that Addison was a fool. He knew that Addison was not a fool, and he knew that Addison knew it. But hatred in Pope's case had become so great, and I was almost going to say so pure, that it illuminated all things as love illuminates all things. He said what was really wrong with Addison, and in calm and clear and everlasting colors, he painted the picture of the evil of the literary temperament. Bear like the Turk, no brother near the throne. View him with scornful, yet with jealous eyes, and hate for arts that caused himself to rise. Like Cato, give his little senate laws, and sit attentive to his own applause while wits and templars every sentence raise, and wonder with a foolish face of praise. This is the kind of thing which really goes to the mark at which it aims. It is penetrated with sorrow and a kind of reverence, and it is addressed directly to a man. This is no mock tournament to gain the applause of the crowd. It is a deadly duel by the lonely seashore. In current political materialism there is everywhere the assumption that without understanding anything of his case or his merits, we can benefit a man practically. Without understanding his case and his merits, we cannot even hurt him. End of chapter 4